invite the rest of you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings. The text this morning is 1 Kings 7 and the first 11 verses of verse 8. Next week we'll have the opportunity to hear that inspiring and deep prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple. It's interesting because next week we'll be looking at very deep theology and and heartfelt prayer and recounting of all of the deeds that the Lord has done in Israel. And this week we find out how tall the pillar is and how much liquid the basin holds. That may seem difficult to you. Maybe you're thinking that we should have skipped over and I can understand that. As I was thinking about this text this morning, some, some incidents came to mind that I will share with you in just a moment. But before we do that, let us seek the Lord's blessing upon His Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would use this text to convict us of sin, to encourage us to look to Christ, to show love to one another. We pray, O Lord, that You would show us Yourself in Your Word that we might see Jesus. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I remember this as a time that was probably the most boring in my life. I was about 12 years old, and it seemed that all day, every Saturday for about a month, my parents trotted me and my seven-year-old sister, so I didn't even have a brother, kids, to deal with this, my little sister, to go to the tile store, and the cabinet store, and the carpet store. As my parents were preparing to build their first home, it wasn't their first home, but it was the first construction they were undertaking. And they, of course, wanted to look at every different shade of cabinet and all the different colors of the carpet, and I sat there saying, can we please go home? Pick any color. Who cares? Ugh. You ever felt like that? Perhaps you felt like that even when you come to a text like this. You know, as we get older, it doesn't get any easier. We moved here to Katy, and my wife got together with our wonderful Stella to be prepared to do interior decorating, and she would ask me in a very heartfelt voice, do you think, is this good? Do you like this? And I had two questions. Do you like it? Yes. Does Stella like it? Yes. Go ahead and do it. This is not my forte. You see, often the Bible can be like that to us. It seems hidden. And we have a temptation to do one of two things with a text like this. The first is we skip over it. Oh, yeah, okay, good. There's some stuff, some cubits, good. The second thing that we can be tempted to do is to, quote, mine the text, get into it, and find hidden meaning in every little thing. The word 50 is in here. That must have something to do with the 50-somethings in the book of Hosea. The word 32 is in here, so what's the 32nd book in the Bible? Maybe that has... You see, what we need to do is take this text as it has been given to us. It is inspired history. There is a reason why it is included. You may recall that I've said that over the period of the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, 
the history of Israel, about twice the length of our country's history, is covered. When you think about it that way, it seems very fast-paced. And so this morning, what I would like us to see are three things in this text. The first thing we'll see is a house. A house. And then the second thing we'll see is something you would expect after you talk about a house, and that's some furniture. We'll see a house, and then we'll see some furniture. But then as we move into chapter 8, we'll see perhaps if you've used this turn of phrase, a house is different than a home, we'll see the life that inhabits the house of God, the temple. So we're going to look at a house first, then we're going to look at some furniture, and then finally, the life. Let's look then first at the house in chapter 7. This chapter begins with a house, but it's not the house that we've been talking about. You may recall that I've said that in the Hebrew, the word for temple is actually house. Well, in what is a bit of a play on words, and is also descriptive of what Solomon has been doing, we turn from the house of the Lord that, the, that Solomon has been building to the house of Solomon that Solomon has been building. And the historian tells us that Solomon was building his own house for 13 years. And he furnished, excuse me, and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits and its breadth 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. And it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. Our author is now moving into describing something else that's being built. And I want you to know that this is continuity here. You may need to take your thumb in your Bible and put it over the big seven that exists between chapter 6, verse 38, and chapter 7, verse 1. And that's because there is no sharp break or distinction here. Our historian has been describing what has been happening with the building of the house, that is the temple, how long it has taken, and then now he moves to the other construction projects that Solomon has, moving to his personal construction. And he tells us that this is, in the famous words of Ed Sullivan, a really big show. How do I know this? The stones that are used for the foundation are huge. They are between 12 and 15 feet big. Look at verse 10. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones of 8 and 10 cubits. Here's a little Bible trivia for you. A cubit is basically a foot and a half. If you want the 40-minute version of that, I'll describe different cubits and inches and centimeters, and you can do what I've done at, at times in the past in looking at this. But I think a better rule of thumb is a cubit is about a foot and a half. So we're talking about each individual stone being 12 feet. That's how big the stone is. That's a mighty big foundation stone. One of many. This is a large undertaking. It's also not just really one house, it's really five houses in one. 
Because look at what verse 1 says. He finished his entire house. But then verse 2 says, there's the house of the forest of Lebanon. And then we see in verse 6, the hall of pillars. And then we see in verse 7, the hall of the throne. And then in verse 8, his own house. And what would a marriage be like unless you had his and her mansions? Then he has an entire house for the Pharaoh's daughter. So it's five homes with these gigantic stones. And it's not just that they're big. I want you to imagine this is not that big, huge band saws, big, huge diamond-cutting saws cut out these blocks and put them on a large truck. No, these are sawed by men with saws and then carried or dragged miles. Each one of these stones might cost a kingdom's ransom. That's how big of a deal this house is. But it's not just big. It's magnificent. The construction is of costly stones. But I want you to notice something here. We looked last week at the preparations for the building of the temple and the building of the temple. And do you remember what Solomon did with Hiram, king of Tyre? He said, basically, could you hire an entire labor force just to cut trees, just to do the wood for the the temple? But now here, there's really a lot of wood. There's so much wood paneling in this house that it is called the house of the forest of Lebanon. Magnificence. Imagine walking in. At every other place that you go where there's a house, there might be dirt floors. Maybe there are animal skins. Maybe there's some kind of rough, barked-out wood. Not smooth two-by-fours. And then you walk into Solomon's house. And it's the richest, most beautiful, smooth, fragrant, cedar chests, ladies, paneling you have ever seen. And it is massive. And it's not paneling trim. It's floor to ceiling. Everywhere. It is absolutely magnificent. But the next thing that we see, though, is even though this is a really big show, it's really not that big of a deal. It's not so big a deal. Why do I say that? It's because if you just flip back one page, you'll see Solomon building the temple in chapter 6. You go back maybe one more page, you see Solomon preparing for the temple in verse 5. Verse 5 is 18 verses. Verse 6 is 38 verses. And then in chapter 7 and verse 13, we pick up again the temple furnishings. And that takes us all the way through to verse 51. And then that doesn't even count the ark being brought into the temple and the dedication of the temple. And sandwiched in the middle of this, in 13 little old verses, is this magnificent home that took twice as long to build as the temple. Can you almost feel our author saying, well, you know there was this temple. Or, excuse me, you know there was this house. The temple! Well, Solomon had this little house. But the temple! Well, yeah, there was some wood in Solomon's house. You can almost hear the passing note in his voice as he sandwiches this opulent luxury 
around the temple of the living God. You see, the really big show is the temple. Because even though there is wealth and power in the house, the really big show with the temple is not the fact that there's gold everywhere. It's not the fact that there are stones everywhere. The really big thing about the temple is that that is the place of sacrifice. That is the place of atonement. That is the Old Testament cross. And if I were to ask you today, would you rather stand next to, as the hymnist writes, that old rugged cross, or take a bath in jewels? That old splinter-covered cross is the place of importance and life and energy. So it is here in the Old Testament. The place where God is satisfied, where atonement is made, where the sacrifices are made. That is where the focus of the people of God should be. And everything else is just some nice stuff, maybe to talk about later. You see, our author is being very deliberate here in describing what's going on. There's a parallel passage in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 describing the same thing with one difference. It's significantly shorter. It's about half the length of our passage in 1 Kings. You see, our author is telling us, for us, our modern Western minds, that worship is more important than government. The service of the living God is more important than security at home and wealth and pocketbooks. And too often, Christians need to hear that. Especially as we grow nervous at election time. And we worry if our marginal tax rates will go up. Or we worry if certain of our government rights will be restricted. Or we worry about the state of the world. See, we need to hear that God wants us focused on His worship, on Him and on His Son, primarily. And everything else is but background music. We are to look to the cross. Worship is what is important. But what's a house without some furniture? And so our author then moves to discussing some furniture. And he skips right over the furniture in Solomon's house. That in itself is an interesting point, isn't it? Ladies, if you had your own mansion, his and her McMansions, you think you'd spend some time talking about couches and beds and tables and counters. No, our historian flies right by that, and he starts to talk about the furnishings in the temple. And he invites us to do two things. First, to look. And then, to listen. First, to look, and then to listen. What do we see as we look? The first thing that we see is is that these temple furnishings are extraordinary. They are made of metal. Not just any old metal, bronze and gold. If you read through this text, you'll notice that not once does the word silver appear. And you may say to yourself, well, why isn't there any silver? And the answer comes to us in the 10th chapter of this book, 
where we're told that silver was counted as nothing in the days of Solomon. Because there was so much wealth and gold. Gold was all the temple. Because silver wasn't even important enough for the temple. And there's a man who makes these bronze implements that are needed alongside Solomon, who makes the golden ones. And his name, and this might be confusing, is Hiram. This is not the same Hiram. Even though it says he comes from Tyre too. Yes, sometimes the Bible can be confusing. But you know what? There's more than a couple Johns around. One of my boys' baseball teams, there's two or three Caleb's. Constantly trying to remember who's who. There's two Hirams here. And this Hiram is not the king of Tyre. This Hiram is the son of an Israelite. He's the son of a widow of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre. And that language there might even mean to us that his stepfather was a man of Tyre. Because we know that his mother was a widow of Naphtali. So it's very likely that he is at least half Israelite, if not all Israelite. Why? It's because in the work of the temple, God uses his people, and he gifts his people, and he gives Hiram a very specific kind of skill. He says he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. That may remind you of another man, a man who also has a kind of a difficult name to remember, Bezalel. You see him in Exodus 31. His job was making all of the things that were metal for the tabernacle. And he had this same gift of wisdom and skill, and it was a gift that came from God. So God furnishes for the furnishings. God gifts Bezalel, and now God gifts Hiram. He gives them a spirit of understanding, will and, excuse me, wisdom and skill. This shouldn't surprise us. Hiram works in bronze. Who makes the gold? But the one who has been gifted with wisdom and skill beyond any other, Solomon. So as we look, we see all of this metal, and we see its magnificence. And then we walk up to these pillars. These two pillars are 27 feet high. They are 18 feet around. Now, you all know my skill as a mathematician, so I'm not going to bore you with it, but I would guess it would mean that the pillars are as high as this ceiling, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, and about as wide as that staircase around. They are massive. They can probably be seen from some unbelievable distance. And they're made of bronze, so they glint in the sun. They are brilliant. And then you walk over and you see this sea. It's not even called a basin. It's called, in verse 23, the sea of cast metal. Because it's so huge. Just to give you an idea, it holds 12,000 gallons of water. 12,000. That means if I asked 100 of us to stand up, and I put two gallon jugs, one in each hand, 
of a hundred of us, you would have to make 60 trips total, all of you, to fill this seat. Pretty magnificent, isn't it? And this is used so that the priests might wash and be purified and that the temple area might be kept clean. It is massive. And then there are ten other basins. And they hold, uh, they only hold 200 gallons each. They're each a small swimming pool. And we get the wrong impression here when we read about how they have frames that they're set on and how there are wheels on the frames and axles. We think of these movable little carts. Each one of these ten basins would weigh about a ton. Not a ton a lot. A ton, 2,000 pounds. Do you get the idea of the massive scope as you look around? But there's something else here that we don't want to miss in the massive scope. We could go through and look at the lattices and at the pomegranates and at the lilies and at all of the detail that is used in constructing this furniture. And this detail is all laid out in in fullness. Why? Well, I take us back to our interior decorating lesson. You've probably had occasion to do this in your home. And again, I've watched Stella do this. And that is there are certain things that are put out in the house. And it's not just any old thing. It's, this was my grandmother's. This reminds me of the time when we went to Mexico. This reminds me of my two girls that are off at school. You know, there are meaning to the things in our home. It's not just things that look pretty. It's things that are filled with meaning. And so it is here with what is set out in the temple. It's not only magnificent. It's not only valuable. It has a personal touch. That shouldn't surprise us either. Because God does not call us to a cold, austere worship. He calls us to enter into his presence to be in relationship with Him. We don't just come in to worship Him and check our mind and emotions at the door, check off the list, and leave. We don't just say, give me six of the most expensive things you can find. No, we say, give us something that will express our heart for God, that will permit us to enter into His presence. We're going to be doing that We don't have Hiram. We don't have Holy Spirit-inspired decorators. But as we think about chairs and carpet and walls and paint in our new building, we ought to be thinking about how it can connect us to God. Not what it says about us, but what it says about God. You see, this is the way the furniture is set out for us to see. But it's not just a show. God doesn't only say, look. He says, listen. There's a reason why this passage is so long. Fifty-some verses. It's because, to be, if, we're, if we're honest with ourselves, it's not what we find important that's in the Scriptures. It's what God finds is important. You see, if it were up to us, we would say, 
and the temple was furnished real good and be done with it. And we wouldn't have to worry about cubits and pomegranates and anything. But you see, God says, I want you to slow down and I want you to take in what it means to worship me. The detail is important to God. And that's not just true in a temple. That's true in your lives as well. Have you found yourself rushing through the details of life, waiting to get to the important day that's about to come, and then look back and wonder where the time has gone? There's a a story that one of the commentators relays of a man who came to the United States from Europe to work in a huge worship hall. And he was doing some intricate work on the ceiling. I think he was carving in some flowers and a nature scene. And a tourist walked by and said, why are you working so long and hard on those details? No one's even going to see it from down here where you are. Who's going to even see that? And you know what his answer was? God will. That's true in our lives as well. Who's going to see the time you pour into your children when no one's there to pat you on the back? God will. Who's going to see when you take the effort to put forth hard, honest work at the office when you know you won't get a dollar more of a bonus for it? God will. Who is going to see when you sit down over coffee and weep with those who weep or rejoice with those who rejoice when there is no one there to say, oh, I love your ministry? God will. God is in the details of life. As much in the temple as he is in your life and mine. God sees and points out the details to us. And We're also called to hear the word as it is shouted out by these two humongous pillars. Listen to the word in the pillars. You see these two pillars here. The one is called Jachin. The other is called Boaz. Now your first impression may be, I don't know what in the world Jachin is. Boaz, isn't that something to do with Ruth? But you see, in reality... This isn't just the name of David's grandfather, although they would have known that. This is kind of like if I say to you, we the people. You can already start saying the rest of it in your mind, can't you? Even if you can't, you already know what document I'm talking about, don't you? You know the concepts that are behind that document, don't you? How about another one? How about if I say to you, In the beginning. You can finish the verse, can't you? For God so loved the world. You can finish it, can't you? You see, it's shorthand. It's shorthand for what God wants us to hear in the temple. And what does Jachin mean? It is a Hebrew word that is used as a name here that means he will establish. Now, that should sound familiar, shouldn't it? We've just seen in chapter 1, chapter 2, that God will establish what? His kingdom. Solomon as the king. This is a 
massive monument, a huge statue of liberty, if you will, that says God keeps his promise. He promised David that he would establish his kingdom and look, Jachin. It shows that the kingdom is established and will not fail. It looks forward to another spectacular incident in which the kingdom is established. It's more spectacular to us, not so to those who saw it, perhaps. It's an incident in which a man riding on a donkey comes through a gate and some people shout, Hosanna! Glory! The King of Kings! And the kingdom of Jesus Christ is shown to be established in that incident as he comes into Jerusalem being declared as the King of Kings, the Messiah. That's what this pillar pictures. Is your view of God's kingdom as firm, as established, as immovable as a 27-foot metal, 18-foot around pole? I don't know about you, but the New York Times can't shove that around. A school system can't knock that over. A music industry can't put a gigantic dent in that. It is immovable, unshakable. It tells us that what God has said, he will do. The emphasis there is on what God has said. And then we turn to Boaz and we see what Boaz means is, in him is strength. And the focus then is not about what God has said, but what God has done and what God can do. Do you see these two pillars? Focusing us on the promise of God and God's power to not only fulfill that promise, but to empower us to act in the promise. Now, can you imagine that? That's a day in the park. Walk by and see the promise of God, the power of God. Talk about a spiritual pick-me-up. That's what these pillars are there to say. And this is always the way God does things. He lays the foundation in His promise, and then He empowers us to act in that promise. You know the fancy term. Asymmetrical synergism. It's what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Quickly followed by, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. How do you depart from iniquity? You look back and see, the Lord knows those that are His. You're empowered by the promise. The promise pushes you on. It's what Paul writes in Romans 4, that we are fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is some furniture, folks. It walks and talks. And then we see, at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 8, a little bit of a transition. We see then the life come to this home. And we see it very briefly in two things. In the presence of the Lord and the will of the Lord. You look through here, you know 
the story, the ark is brought down to the temple. We talked about that at our groundbreaking. And everybody has a part in it. The elders are there. The heads of the tribes are there. Solomon is there. All the people are there. The Levites, the priests. And it is a big deal. The ark. Now, imagine this. The whole of all of the people, imagine that you're from Canaan or you're a Persian and you walk over and there's this massive temple filled with gold gold, with a huge palace next to it, all kinds of cedar, everything going on. And then everybody is excited about a small wooden box on poles being carried. Seems kind of silly, doesn't it? It's the same way the world looks at the presence of the Lord in the church and says, that's silly. You don't have stock options. How many congressmen on your side? Everyone is around this ark and it comes into the temple and the cloud covers the temple such that they can't even minister. A thick cloud. God's glory touches down where the ark is. And I want you to think about this in in two different ways as we see the presence of the Lord is a bit of a mystery here. The presence of God is this thick cloud that doesn't really allow you to see or get your arms around it. What exactly is it is? You're in the middle of it. You, you don't even know really where you are. It's a bit of a mystery. And this is continuity with the tabernacle, isn't it? Because this same kind of cloud came down on the tabernacle. You see, God is present when he makes himself known, not when we do something. This temple was a lot of work, but God wasn't present until he determined to make himself known after his own way. And so this cloud touches down. And so we might look and see the awesomeness of that and be awed by the power of God and the incomprehensibility of God and the otherness of God and say, woo, that is spiritual. And it is. But it is for a reason. Where does the cloud appear? It appears in the temple when the ark comes in, doesn't it? And what does our text say is the only thing in the ark? Verse 9. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb. You remember what Horeb is? We looked at this in our household last night. Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai. And these two tablets are what? But the testimony of the covenant that God had made with Israel at Sinai. The very law of God, the very word of God, written, the scripture tells us, with the finger of God. Do you think it's a coincidence that the awesome, powerful, supernatural, mysterious power of God appears where the word of God appears? Where the covenant testimony of God appears? I don't think so. You see, there is a linkage there. This is not some just vague 
Well, that's kind of neat mystery. This is the presence of God. And the covenant of God is seen. You see, the important part of the mystery is that we go to where the Word is. We see where the Word is, and that is where we go. The trouble is, oftentimes, either all we want is the mystery. Don't give me these hard Bible sayings. Give me a feeling of God. Or we want a set of rules that we can check the box and we don't want our hearts opened up. But you see, even in this grand picture of the temple, God says, you must have both. You must have my word. You must have my presence. My presence is where my word is. And so what the temple yells to you today is, do you want more of God? Do you hunger to pray more? Do you hunger to be a better husband? Do you hunger to be a better wife? Do you hunger to teach your children? Then you must be in the word of God. Don't stand around yelling om, 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 waiting for a feeling to hit you. Be in the word of God and let that word stir up the feeling of mystery and awe and power of God in you. Be directed by it. You know, we were discussing this with the officers last night. It's providence of God. This just came up. We had a long discussion about the sacraments. The sacraments, in a sense, are our temple for this. There is a mystery about the Lord's Supper, but it is grounded and founded in the Word. We are drawn close to the Lord. By his presence and by his word. And his presence is found where his word is found. This is the lesson of the temple. So in conclusion, the Lord is calling you today not to build a temple. We're having a, more, we're having a difficult enough time putting up an 11,000 square foot building. The Lord is calling you today to relationship with Him, to enter into His presence, to find out more who He is, and that is found in His Word. In His Word is where you find His will for you. Do not lay awake at night wondering, what's His perfect will for where I should go to school? Be in His Word. If I can say it starkly, The Lord doesn't care whether you're an Aggie or a Longhorn. He cares whether where you go, you obey Him. And you bear witness to His glory. And that you learn, and that you work, and that you make the best of where He puts you. That doesn't mean it's an unimportant decision. But it means we pour our time into building our character through the Word and becoming more like Jesus wherever He puts us whether it is in the glory of the temple or in the deserts of Sudan. That is the Lord's will for you and for me today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with your word. We pray, O Lord, that you would teach us by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the Lord's blessing.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, now and forever. Amen.